Welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. My name is Krista Lundberg. And I'm Anton Jäger. And today we are talking to Professor Duncan Kelly. Duncan Kelly is Professor of Political Thought and Intellectual History at the University of Cambridge and a Fellow of Jesus College. Professor Kelly is also Fellow of the Royal Historical Society and has held visiting professorships at the University of Paris II and Whitman College in the US. His work focuses on modern political and economic thought, amongst others that of Max Weber and Paul Schmitt, but as will become clear over the course of this interview, he has written about thinkers and topics covering a wide chronological and thematic range. We are delighted to have you here. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for So, Duncan, as usual, we'd like to start with a set of biographical questions. And I think on this occasion, we'd like to buy two formats we've used in the past. So, beginning with your trajectory, and then looking at some of the books that are probably most influential to that trajectory. So, firstly, and this is the first uh, question, could you tell us anything about how you first came to study the history of political thought? Certainly. I came, I suppose, to the history of political thought a little later than you might expect, because my undergraduate degree was really in public policy. So I was taught about what I guess people around here in this university think of as real politics from the beginning. And that's really what I studied. I studied development economics and welfare economics and constitutional systems and practical government and didn't really have much sense of the ideas behind them as I do now. But I suppose it was when I moved from Glasgow to York and was introduced by one of the Marxist-inspired professors who taught me there um, that I really became interested in the history of political thought. So I suppose I moved from real politics to thinking about how people theorized real politics in the past, and I've been going that way ever since. And secondly, could you give us at least three books that have proven capital in pushing your academic interests into this direction, really sort of formative works in your career? I could try and give you just three, although I thought this... I, I worried that this would be a bit like Desert Island Discs. And so I thought about three sets of books instead of three books per se, if I can be cheeky like that. And as I say, I suppose the first that was really inspirational to me was reading Marx, but in particular reading Marx on the 18th Brumaire about the 1851 coup. And from reading Marx, I took an interest in the idea of situational political judgment, I suppose, the sense that one could look at class, one could look at culture, one could look at ideas and ideologies, one could look at people and contexts. And that was really what started to motivate me. And when I moved to become a graduate student, I suppose I was also interested in developing an idea about how Marx inspired later Marxist theorists to think about the state particularly. So when I moved to Sheffield, I started writing a PhD that was about Marxist state theory and its critics, particularly in the 1970s. So I'd been reading a lot of Marx early on, but hadn't really got much of a sense of his critics. And I was told to go and read people like Max Weber and start thinking about Weberian criticisms of Marx and Marxism in the 1970s. That was roughly speaking what my PhD was supposed to be on in the first instance. So I was interested in reading Marx and Max Weber together. And I suppose they were the two formative influences, I guess, on how I've come to think about political thought and intellectual history ever since. But the 
this other two suite of books, I suppose, that I've been interested in, were inspired to some extent by the New Left and, the, and thinking about Marxism, again, from the 1970s onwards. And people I routinely still read, I was inspired by them then and I still read them now, were people like Perry Anderson and I guess also Marxist critics of art or art critics like T.J. Clark. And I was reading those people, trying to get a sense of how you could write about political thought and intellectual history in a very wide panoramic perspective, but still have a conceptual focus that ran through. And so I still read those people and I'm still inspired by them. But the third suite of authors I think I was interested in came quite late, but were those people who've been inspirational to a lot of people in this university. And that was, I suppose, what people refer to mostly as the Cambridge School. And so some of these people have become friends and colleagues over the years since I've been here. But I was inspired particularly by thinking about how to write with clarity about conceptual history as a form of what's become genealogical practice, I suppose, by people like Quentin Skinner. I was inspired by people like John Donne to think about politics as more than just simply a particular set of disciplinary problems, but rather as something more akin to a human predicament that needed to be thought of across wide historical extent, but also with conceptual clarity and focus. And I was also inspired latterly by people like Richard Tuck and Istvang Hunt to think creatively about the the long durée in terms of how we understand contemporary politics, and also to think about the relationship between economics and politics in a non-Marxist perspective. And I suppose, taken all together, those trajectories, I think, have informed my kind of interests, and I'm still very much interested in those sorts of perspectives today. So to continue the theme of, of your trajectory into uh, your first books, um, you began your career with a book on 20th century German political thought, uh, going from Max Weber to Franz Neumann uh, to Karl Schmitt. And you then moved on to write about British imperial thought, as well as notions of liberty and propriety. Is there a discernible thread that unites your interest between these different topics? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's, but I think it's, it's a, a many layered sort of set of interests that connect these themes. One has to do with the relationship between, I guess, what we would call selfhood or personhood and the relationship between a politics based around the self and the, the individual as an agent and the spaces in which they operate politically, principally the state. So the first book was an attempt to put people like Max Weber and Karl Schmidt and Franz Neumann into dialogue around these two axes, first and foremost, and to try and see what it was they shared, but also what it was that separated them. Because when I started reading about those authors, it became quite clear to me that there were certain ideological agendas that were shaping how contemporary political theorists read them. And there was a distinct division between those who thought through contemporary political theory that there were there were useful ideas to be had in Max Weber or Karl Schmitt, particularly less so Franz Neumann at the time I was writing. And those historians who thought that these people's ideas needed to be really grounded in their contexts. And so I tried to bring together both dimensions of serious contextual approach to the history of political thought and an interest in what contemporary political theory should think about certain authors and certain claims. And so I began to write about the relationship between persons or agents and their intellectual history and 
the state as the principal site through which modern politics, particularly in the West, takes shape. And I think that's what continued through into what was an edited book about lineages of imperial thought in Britain, which was the easiest conference I ever had to um, try and put together. It was funded by the British Academy and they provided me with the resources to invite a lot of interesting people and then published a book out of it. So it was a sort of dream to actually be able to do it, but it was very easy and it was very easy to corral a whole set of people to come and talk about as was then art and literature and culture and the history of political thought, particularly when it applied to British imperial thinking and particularly from the 18th century through to the present. And I've maintained an interest in that sort of field, particularly though for, for much more recent work, which I guess we might talk about in a, in a little while. But I, I took a long time out, as it were, to think about the relationship between mainstream ideas of liberty and contemporary political theory as they applied to the level of the person on the one hand and as they applied more broadly to the category of politics on the other, so political liberty and individual liberty. And it was very obvious that in a lot of contemporary political theory, liberty is just thought of as a very straightforward idea or ideal that has to do with varying degrees of constraint or the absence of certain forms of impediment to people's agency. And that there was an attempt in mainstream political theoretical debates when I started writing this book to try and suggest that almost everything that could be said about the concept of liberty could be constrained within the languages of liberalism on the one hand, but also that the languages of liberalism were incredibly contemporary. So you could draw upon particular nuggets to be found in historical figures like John Locke or Adam Smith or Thomas Hill Green in the 19th century in Britain, for example. But there was no sense in which there was a, a unitary set of approaches or arguments that connected these liberal writers together in terms of their thinking about liberty as a form of responsible agency at the level of both the person and at the level of politics or the state. And what I tried to do was to write a book that suggested that the, a liberal politics of selfhood and individual freedom o overlaid or was connected with a wider intellectual tradition of thinking about liberty that could be found in Locke and Montesquieu and Adam Smith, Thomas Hill Green, as I said, and John Stuart Mill. And I tried to rewrite the history of modern liberalism as a way of critiquing some of what I thought were the blind spots in contemporary political theory. And I suppose if there is a unifying thread in the work that I've tried to do so far, it's that. It's an attempt to take issue with certain sort of nostrums in contemporary political theory, show that in fact they have a history and that often the history is more interesting than the contemporary political theory. So your upcoming book, uh, which is coming out this year, normally is called Politics and the Anthropocene. And in the book, you really intend to intervene in a debate that has raged mainly in fields such as environmental history, also Marxist scholarship. But your book is specific in the sense that it tries to connect that contemporary discussion on the Anthropocene sorry, with a field rarely mentioned in this literature, namely the history of political thought. So it focuses mainly on the history of concepts such as the state. So could you tell us something about why you think joining these two conversations, namely the discussion on the Anthropocene and the history of political thought, which is quite prevalent here in Cambridge, of course, might prove such a fruitful endeavor today? Sure, I could try. I mean, I think what motivated me, first of all, to try and think about the concept of the Anthropocene was that it seemed to pose a ginormous challenge to thinking about politics and to the extent that 
the history of political thought or contemporary political theory could say anything about something like the Anthropocene seemed a worthwhile endeavor to, to try and investigate. Because, of course, the Anthropocene is one of those concepts that has no fixed, agreed-upon definition. As in, and, and to a large extent, that makes it an eminently political concept already to use, because although it was formulated by atmospheric scientists and geologists who were trying to think about the transition from a relatively stable era of the Holocene into the contemporary world of the Anthropocene, whereby we're told not only is there supposed to be a new stratigraphic era or epoch that designates a new moment of human history on Earth, there's a philosophical claim behind that geological shift which has to do with the idea that there's no longer any sense in which we can disassociate or disaggregate human agency from the natural environment. So once you put the agency of human beings together with the agency of the environment, there's a sense in which what I've been long concerned with, I think, at the level of agency and politics came, came to the forefront for me. But I was also interested in thinking about whether mainstream politics through the state had any kind of response to a challenge like the Anthropocene, because it seems fairly obvious to most people that mainstream politics through the state has had a fairly limited impact in terms of doing anything meaningful about contemporary climate change. And the Anthropocene is one of those intriguing concepts that has come to overlay a whole series of debates, one of which has to do with the relationship between climate science and climate change and the politics of nations and the politics of states. So I wanted to see if the history of political thought particularly had anything to say that might challenge the rather fatalistic sense that you get when you read a lot of contemporary environmental literature about the Anthropocene or indeed cultural anthropologists who write about the Anthropocene and they talk about the way in which the earth is already a doomed space and that human history is already on the decline, on the out, and that what we need to do properly is to learn how to die in the age of the Anthropocene. And it seemed to me, well, even if that's true, and I wanted to try and resist the thought that that necessarily had to be true, but even if it's true, it's not a very politically um, opportune way of thinking about such a concept. And so I tried to begin with the thought that when the Anthropocene emerged as a concept in public discourse, most prominently around about the year 2000, although it had been doing the rounds a little bit before then, there was a sense in which people were looking for a moment at which this could be said to emerge. And the first port of call that people alighted upon when they thought about this was around about 1784. So they thought that there was a way in which the Anthropocene as a new geological ep epoch could be tied to the emergence of the Industrial Revolution, and in particular the, uh, the, the patenting of the famous steam engine by Watts. And it seemed to me that that was an intriguing way to start if you were interested in the history of political thought too, because of course in the 1780s that's the moment at which we begin to get a sense of the development of a new way of thinking about and a new development in the practice of representative politics, particularly in Western Europe and Anglo-America. So what's thought of often as the age of democratic revolutions and the emergence of the Anthropocene seem to go together. And given that that sort of connection, those sorts of time frames that connect the Anthropocene and the history of political thought, it seemed useful to me to consider whether or not it was worthwhile saying that, well, maybe politics is to blame 
for the emergence of the Anthropocene, the birth of modern politics and the birth of the Anthropocene might go together. And then we might be able to get a handle on whether or not the modern politics should be able to do anything about a challenge as ginormous and global as the Anthropocene. But it was also interesting to me that as the scientific debates have moved on since 2000 and people have considered whether or not that origin story was valid, different sorts of narratives often referred to in the literature as sort of Anthropocene epistemologies or Anthropocene narratives have come to dominate the scholarship. And there's a sense in which people now want to connect up the emergence of the Anthropocene with the development of a period in 20th century history routinely called the Great Acceleration. So this is a moment around about 1945, connected up to the use of nuclear weapons. And a claim is being made that the nuclear trace or sediment in the Earth's atmosphere and in the Earth's, in the layers of the Earth constitute something about the, or constitute, as it were, a geological moment or, or spike that's able to be seen, but which also ties up with an increasingly rapid speeding up of contemporary politics. So the, an accelerated time frame of politics, an accelerated moment of nuclear history and an accelerated series of interconnections between political change, human agency and environmental fallout, as it were, all came together. And so it seemed to me that there was another time frame through which we could see whether the history of political thought had anything to say about the contemporary challenge of the Anthropocene. And the third and the final temporal moment, I suppose, that really struck me was the sense in which one way that the Anthropocene really, really matters for contemporary politics and which politics really has to get a grip on is the sense in which a kind of deep time geological narrative about the history and the development of the earth has to come to be incorporated into the short-term artificial worlds of, of politics. And it, it was that connection between deep and natural time and short-term artificial political time that also led me to think about the ways in which the history of political thought might have something to say about that sort of temporal interconnection too. And all of that is to say that it seems to me that if politics and the history of political thought are about understanding the time frames through which certain ideas about contemporary politics gain traction or have re relevance or resonance, then the Anthropocene seems like a straightforwardly political project. And it's something that political theorists and historians of political thought really should have something to say about. And the fact that nobody as yet had written a book about the relationship between the history of political thought and the politics of the Anthropocene seemed to open up an opportunity for me. So that's where, where I've tried to jump in. In addition to the Anthropocene book, you're also working on a book on the political thought of the First World War, with a focus on the French thinker Elie Alevi and the thought of Max Weber. Are there any specific reasons as to why you think we ought to return to that period in political thought, um, except for last year's centenary? So I think what was really interesting about the First World War from the perspective of intellectual history for me was the way in which the language of an open 19th century that transitioned into a closed world of the 20th century which closed down certain sorts of possibilities for thinking about economic and political cooperation, which was then ironically opened up through the First World War and then closes down again in the 1920s through moments of reconstruction, was a sort of narrative that I began to 
think came from people like John Maynard Keynes, was also somehow there in people like Max Weber, and was certainly there in people like Ely Alevi. So I started reading these people seriously again and go, returning to Weber, coming to Alevi for the first time, doing a lot of archival work in Paris on what he had to say, what he was teaching, what he was thinking about during the First World War. And I was trying to get a sense of whether or not there was scope to write something like an intellectual history of the First World War in the first place. And that seemed to me something that hadn't been really done and probably hadn't been done because it was potentially too ambitious or too unwieldy, but also because it takes it takes our attention slightly further away from the mainstream of either cultural histories of the memory of the First World War, for example, or the legacy of the First World War that we have inherited in various ways in different countries through the language of literature and poetry and through the art and memorials to the First World War that we see around the place. And also was an attempt to go beyond, I think, and this is particularly what I was interested in, was an attempt to go beyond thinking about simply the mobilisation of intellect as something that happened in the First World War, which is to say, in other words, that the only way intellectuals got involved in the First World War was when they invested themselves in the work of propaganda, propaganda for their own nation. And it seemed to me that much of the most interesting political and in economic thinking in and around the First World War itself came from a series of individuals, whether they ranged from having a position in, in Berlin or in London or in Washington or elsewhere in, in modern Turkey or in India or Russia, was that these were not necessarily the works that were coming from people who were propagandizing for national victory and national renewal. They were people who were already mature during the First World War and who had serious things to say already about the interconnection between what we might call international economic competition on the one hand and domestic political strategy on the other. And those people who already had perspectives about how the world worked politically were those people I was interested in resuscitating, I suppose, for the writing of an intellectual history of the First World War. And people like Weber and Alevi and also Keynes in a Western context became touchstones for me and they've remained so. So I think that why we, why we should want to go back there is to reconstruct why it is that our languages for thinking about politics actually became fixed by thinkers who were reflecting upon the First World War. The reason we still go back to reading people like Weber and Alevi is precisely because of what they had to say, either at the time or in the immediate aftermath of the, the legacy of the First World War for thinking about modern politics. And I think we haven't really escaped it. So the, the centenary has come and gone, or the formal centenary has come and gone in a European context. But the language through which we still think about politics in the state remains very much alive for us. And that's why I think it's worthwhile investigating. So as we've remarked, your work is not only marked by a very wide range of topics of interest, going from British imperial thought to Foucault's politics, for example, but it also stands out by its very conscious decision to bring the insights offered by the history of political thought to bear on debates in contemporary political theory again. So we are wondering whether you could give us some kind of abbreviated statement as to how you'd envision an ideal marriage, if there needs to be an ideal marriage or a marriage at all, between history and theory, and why the first might be in need of the other and vice versa. Mm. 
Well, of course, as you say, I mean, that's been such a profoundly important worry for a lot of people associated with political thought in its history in Cambridge, that I could hardly fail to have been affected by in some way of thinking about the relationship. I was always inspired by the promise that actually the best way to understand contemporary politics was through the history of political thinking. And I was always perplexed by the fact that nobody had ever been able to make a watertight methodological case that you definitely needed the history of political thought in order to understand contemporary politics. And of course, it must be true that, for example, to go back one step to thinking about the Anthropocene, that reading someone like Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century is not going to tell us about what we should do in the age of the Anthropocene, if anything. So there's clearly a challenge if you want to explain why certain sorts of concepts have historical resonance in the present. You're going to have to work out which concepts and what histories and what sort of connections there are between past and present. And so therefore, the construction of the relationship between the history of political thought and contemporary political theory, to my mind, is always the evolution of an argument about how we should think about politics in our own time. And all of that is to say, I think, that I don't really see any disconnect between the history of political thought and political theory itself. And I think that's what intellectual history can show us. And at one level, this is a, a rather Keynesian-inspired thought. And that's to say, I was always interested from the first time I read Keynes in abbreviated fashion, it has to be said, with the famous peroration that comes towards the end of the general theory of employment, interest and money from 1936, where Keynes had said famously that the world is ruled by little else than in the power of ideas, and that the power of ideas nonetheless have to be brought into or brought to bear on contemporary politics by the actions of those who have power, i.e. practical statesmen. So he wanted to get us to think about the way in which practical politicians and practical political agents have to mobilize ideas in order to wield their power successfully, and that there isn't really a disconnect between ideas and practice, or idealism and materialism in a different sort of register. But the way in which ideas are mobilized in the real world in real time often requires that they be distorted or manufactured, or they have to be understood as being re-described through moments of blatant misrecognition or misunderstanding, for example. And what I think the, that intellectual history can bring to bear on the connection between the history of political thought and contemporary political theory is an awareness that understanding ideas requires a serious commitment to contextualism, particularly if we're talking about political ideas, I think, on the one hand. But it also requires us to see how it is those ideas do transform the world around them in the here and now, i.e. we're writing both about reception, diagnosis, and implementation of particular ideas on the one hand, and their potentially radically different sounding histories on the other at the same time. That seems to me what connects the history of political thought to contemporary political theory. And intellectual history is a bridge between the two spheres, as it were. But if I was being really polemical, I think I'd just say that I don't really see that there's much of a difference. We're doing the same sort of thing when we write what we think of as contemporary political theory as we're doing 
when we investigate texts in the history of political thought or we investigate moments in the history of political thought, same thing over and over again. Finally, would you care to tell us about any future plans? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I have three, I suppose, big picture future plans. One has to do with, after finishing the, the book on the First World War, trying to put together a series of essays on the, the theme of political judgment, which I've been working on for a very long time, and which I actually began by giving lectures about when I first took the job in Cambridge that I've got now um, back in 2007. So it's been coming for a long time. But then political judgment is a complicated thing. So I've been trying to put that together. And I think over the next few months, that should be able to be realized. I also am committed to writing a book about the transformation of the, the global language of politics between 1848 and 1914. So taking a generational step back from the First World War to try and think about the emergence of a language of realism or realpolitik, in, particularly in European political thinking around the revolutionary moment of 1848, and then seeing what happens to that language as realpolitik really gets going in its modern iteration during the First World War. And finally, the, the big project that I, I have my eye on in the, into the future is an attempt to try and say something about the relationship between the history of political thought and the history of art in the early 20th century. And that's something that will probably take me a very long time, uh, longer than the First World War, I imagine. But it's something that I've got my eye on doing in, in, a, in a few years' time once all these other things are off my desk. Well, these sounds like very uh, fascinating forthcoming projects, which we are looking very much forward to seeing materialized. In the meantime, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. We will be back soon with another episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast.